Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Joining us today is a tenured associate professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He holds a PhD in economics from Harvard University, specializing in resource allocation systems. Much of his research has focused on market design to address suboptimal kidney transplant outcomes in the United States, as well as in other markets without money as a medium of exchange. It is my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Nikhil Agarwal. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. So firstly, I'd like to start start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your research in market design. Yeah, so I've been, uh, an, I'm an economist at MIT, and I've been thinking about how to allocate scarce resources uh, without using money. Uh, this includes, for example, placing students to uh, schools that they uh, are most suited for. And uh, for a long time now, I've been studying organ allocation uh, been trying to understand how the severe shortage of kidneys in the United States can be uh, better managed. Uh, so as you know, uh, as you might know, there are 100,000 patients who are in need of a kidney transplant currently waiting for a kidney. And in a typical year, we only transplant under 20,000 of them, and many of them will die while waiting. So there are many ways in which we can find transplants for them. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how to expand the number of transplants we can provide to these patients, as well as uh, how to better match patients to uh, potential donors. Uh, so that's been a big focus of my work. I've been starting, I've also started some work on heart transplantation and other uh, medical, uh, scarce allocation of other medical resources. Uh, so that's sort of my, uh, my research area uh, recently. Okay, so I wanted to start off, start off by talking to you in a bit of detail regarding your research as it pertains to kidney transplants. So like you said, um, as MIT News reported, 20% um, of kidneys in the United States that could be transplanted are never used and around 30 to 50% of people who are willing to donate a kidney never find a recipient. So they also stated that with around 100,000 Americans waiting for kidney transplants at any given time, these are suboptimal situations. So Dr. Agarwal, can you please tell us a bit about what is causing, what is causing these inefficient outcomes and what can be done to improve efficient allocations? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we don't know the complete answer. Uh, we know that there are certain things that are potentially contributing to it, uh, but we don't know all the sources of inefficiency. And I'm working on research that is trying to address those issues. So uh, one of the things that you mentioned is that about 20% of kidneys that are donated for transplantation uh, never find a recipient. These are patients who, these are donors who died and their family members are willing to donate uh, one or both of their kidneys. Uh, to patients on the list. But uh, the way the list works is that patients are offered these kidneys and surgeons are offered these kidneys and they might decline. And many of these kidneys that are uh, potentially could benefit a lot of uh, patients end up choosing not to uh, uh, accept these kidneys in the hopes of potentially finding another one that's better or for other reasons. And so there could be a number of different uh, things that, that are happening that could be causing this. One is that maybe patients don't really know, uh, surgeons don't necessarily know how, how long they have to wait for the next kidney and maybe it is uh, suitable for them and they get a lot of life fears out of it, but they don't completely understand it. Uh, there's some recent research by Sumit Mohan and his co-authors and uh, I think in uh, in the New York area that shows that uh, many, many times kidneys get uh, rejected during the weekends because uh, transplant centers are not staffed uh, so there are various different factors that are contributing to this. Uh, another thing that happens is that 
it takes time to offer the kidneys to uh, patients on the waiting list. You have to go down and make sure that uh, you contact all the people in the correct priority order. And by the time we've contacted enough people, uh, we might have a situation where the kidney has been outside the donor's body for several hours, maybe a day. And at that point, it's very difficult to uh, uh, transplant it because the quality of the kidney degrades. And so I'm working with Itaya Shlagi and Paulo Someni and other people uh, on trying to understand whether there are ways in which we can expedite that process, uh, find better prediction tools for figuring out which kidneys should be expedited so that uh, they don't get discarded because they've been uh, outside the, the, the donor's body. So that's regarding the deceased donors where about two thirds of kidneys come from. Uh, another thing that you mentioned was that many patients uh, and have living donors, like 30% of uh, patients potentially, uh, some studies that suggest, have uh, living donors who are willing to donate a kidney to them, but they're not compatible. And uh, because they're not compatible, in some cases, they're not able to find a match. Uh, there are some national transplant exchanges, such as the National Kidney Registry or the Alliance for Pet Donation, that try to match patients and donors from various hospitals to each other. Uh, so that living donors uh, who are willing to donate one of their own kidneys, uh, because you can live with just one kidney, are able to find uh, a kidney for their loved one, even though they're not biologically compatible with each other. And so there are ways that I'm working on on how to make those systems more efficient, find better solutions uh, that uses economic principles from market design to try and uh, incentivize more participation of these exchanges. Um, and when there's more participation in these exchanges, you can have sort of all of the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. So you can see all the donors and all the patients in one platform and potentially find the best match. And this way we can potentially increase the number of transplants uh, uh, if it works out. Okay, so markets such as the market for kidney transplants that do not allow prices obviously cannot be looked at in the conventional sense. So without pricing, the mechanisms of supply and demand that typically make markets operate so efficiently don't quite work. So to quote you, in economics, we often assume there's the demand, the supply, the price, and the market clears somehow. It just happens. That's not how a lot of markets work. There are all these different important markets where we do not allow prices. So, Dr. Agarwal, can you please tell us a bit more about how market design researchers, such as yourself, typically approach such markets without money acting as a medium of exchange, where conventional economic models don't quite apply? That's a great question. And uh, I think that uh, there's a lot of nuance to these markets where we cannot use prices and they look different. So if you think about one market where we don't allow prices is the placement of students to public schools. Uh, that market looks very different from the kidney market. Uh, in the public school market, uh, you know, all of the students apply, maybe in the fall, together for positions in public school seats. And so there's a beautiful idea called the deferred acceptance algorithm that is a solution to, the, uh, uh, to this problem where we, uh, what we do is we have the students rank the schools that they're interested in going to, the schools have their priorities, and then we use an algorithm that tries to match uh, the, the students' preferences to the school's priorities in a way that is, uh, in some sense, uh, beneficial or optimal. Uh, in the kidney market, in the deceased donor kidney market, it works very differently. Uh, at a given point in time, there are 100,000 patients waiting, and maybe a few kidneys show up every day. And so the the decision is with whether I should take a kidney today or uh, take a kidney tomorrow or wait for the better kidney tomorrow. And so uh, the, the principles are quite different. You want to make sure that uh, patients and surgeons have incentives to accept kidneys that are good for them. 
uh, match the kidneys well based on survival benefits and other things like that. And so you have to design the priority system very differently. Uh, the kidney exchange market is uh, yet another type of uh, market that's very different and a different set of uh, algorithms are used. So there isn't a particular solution or a single solution because we can't just buy and sell kidneys uh, that works. And you have to really think about what the problem is, uh, you know, what are the types of decisions people have to make and try to tailor a solution uh, to that specific setting. All right. So, I mean, next, I wanted to talk to you a bit about the regulatory hurdles in improving outcomes in markets without prices. So in many such markets, like the, the kidney transplant market, although it may be possible to design mathematically optimal solutions to efficiently allocate resources, the actual implementation of these solutions is a whole different question. So I wanted to ask you what you would urge state and local governments, as well as bureaucratic institutions to, to do to make it easier for researchers such as yourself to trial and implement your solutions in the real world. I think that uh, there's a very good uh, recognition that we need more research uh, and, and, uh, and how to improve these um, uh, outcomes and allocations. And, you know, Congress is aware of it. Congress has been sort of, for example, uh, investigating uh, the, the, the transplant system for the past few years, past couple of years, and thinking about how to improve it. Uh, data access is not that difficult either. So that's, that's great. And there are some pilot studies out there. Uh, there's always uh, some difficulty in economics of, you know, uh, experimenting with the real world because it can affect real people's lives. So I, there are lots of other ethical issues that are valid in, uh, you know, really sitting down and tinkering with the system. Um, as far as regulatory hurdles go, I, I, I think more than regulatory hurdles, I would say that uh, one of the things that keeps kidney exchange a little bit limited right now in the United States is that, uh, it's not adequately funded by Medicare. Uh, Medicare usually pays for the treatment of patients who are uh, uh, who have chronic kidney failure, uh, and so it really picks up a tab for dialysis and other kinds of costs related to kidney failure. Uh, but what it could do uh, more is to try and really fund uh, kidney exchange at a more broader level. There are specific costs in kidney exchange that could be done that could be uh, reimbursed that hospitals have to undertake and other things like that, that would make it a much more common and a widespread uh, modality for transplanting patients. Um, and of course, we've got to be careful with the transplant systems and make sure that you know any kinds of changes go through public review and other things like that, which happens routinely uh, when the system, for example, when the disease or system has to change. And I understand that there are some changes afoot right now. Uh, so I think there's a good recognition that this system needs to be improved. Uh, but we don't necessarily know exactly how yet. So one of the things um, here that that may potentially prove useful, um, I wanted to ask you um, how, if, if we look overseas um, and compare the United States kidney transplant system um, to other countries, potentially in Europe, um, who have centralized systems of healthcare that may make it easier for, for kidneys, um, you know, kidney donors to find um, patients. How does the United States healthcare system compare to, to other countries and, and would um, would we need, um, would broader reform um, of the healthcare industry as a whole um, help outcomes in this in, 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 as it pertains to kidney transplants? Yeah, I'm, I'm not as familiar with uh, the transplant systems in other countries. Uh, the United States is a, a fairly advanced and relatively a leader in kidney exchange, uh, although more can be done. On the disease donor side, 
you know, the United States does have a lot of dis- discards, as we mentioned earlier, 20% of kidneys are discarded, deceased donor kidneys are discarded, and the procurement system could also uh, do better potentially. Uh, one thing that I, one study that I recently saw was from France in which uh, my understanding is that uh, kidneys that would otherwise be rejected in the United States because doctors are not willing to accept those kidneys because of potentially risk taking, uh, because if they're worried about taking too much risk, uh, uh, in France, we're transplanting those kidneys potentially and with good outcomes. Uh, so we should consider uh, being more lenient, perhaps, uh, on that dimension. So in the United States, we rank and sorry, we rate transplant centers based on the outcomes of their patients. And if their uh, if their outcomes uh, become worse uh, than what is expected, what is normal uh, on a risk adjusted basis, then they might lose funding Medicare eligibility for transplantation. Uh, that makes them risk averse. Uh, in a way that may not be beneficial because we might end up transplanting fewer kidneys uh, as compared to what we could. So that's one of the issues that at least compared compared to France, we might be behind on. Okay. So finally, I wanted to ask you about a recent paper on COVID vaccinations that you wrote titled The Trade-Off Between Prioritization and Vaccination Speed Depends on Mitigation Measures in February of this year. So according to the abstract, vaccination speed must be at least 53% higher under no prioritization to avoid increasing debts. With sustained mitigation, discarding NASM prioritization will result in 42,000 more debts, requiring only a 26% increase in speed to hold debts constant. So almost a year into the vaccine rollout, can you please tell us how close the United States came to achieving the optimal trade-off and what could have been done differently? Yeah, so this paper was written to give you some background. In the early days of the vaccine rollout, where people were concerned about uh, wastage of trans- of uh, vaccines because of the priority rules. Um, and what we were looking at is whether, uh, to the extent that these uh, priority rules are slowing down the vaccination campaign, does it make sense to maintain the prioritization of uh, elderly adults and, you know, healthcare workers? And it's a very difficult, uh, you know, efficiency and ethical uh, question to ask uh, and, and to resolve. Uh, And what we found in our paper was roughly that age-based prioritization uh, made a lot of sense. And uh, it 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 did not make sense, especially when supplies for vaccine were extremely scarce in the early days of the campaign, to abandon age-based prioritization. Uh, Many, many more lives are saved uh, by age-based prioritization uh, than when, when vaccines are scarce as compared to a situation where we allowed a more free-for-all approach. And if you remember, in the early days, states were taking various approaches to uh, the vaccine rollout. They weren't using a uniform uh, prioritization rule. Uh, Some states were using granular rules on prioritization uh, by age, and some states were using much more coarser rules. So that's what this paper was really about. Uh, The other point in the paper is that uh, vaccines and masking and social distancing and other things like that are complementary and very important uh, uh, approaches to take simultaneously uh, when the when the pandemic was raging. If you remember, uh, in, in December of last year, there was a wave. Uh, infection rates were very high right after the holidays. And so the vaccine rollout was happening at a time when infection rates were already very high. And so we were pushing towards maintaining mitigation measures such as masking and social distancing during the rollout, um, as opposed to uh, an approach that suggested that 
uh, once the vaccine starts coming, vaccine rollout starts happening, uh, we can ease very rapidly uh, on these other mitigation measures. And uh, I think that if you consider the experience in the last 11 months or so, uh, we've gone back to a, uh, to a regime in which we're going back more and more to a regime in which, despite a lot of people being vaccinated, masking and uh, to some extent social distancing um, has been encouraged, especially if you think about the recent threat of the Omicron variant. Uh, you know, I, I expect that uh, other non-pharmaceutical mitigation measures are likely to continue, at least in the short term, um, if we are concerned that this uh, variant is uh, both deadly and highly, highly virulent. Well, those are all the questions that I have for you today. I've certainly learned a tremendous amount, as I'm sure our audience has too. So thank you so much for joining us on the show, Dr. Agarwal. Uh, thank you very much for having me. This was a pleasure. Uh, and I look forward to uh, hearing your podcast more. Uh, thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. As always, we'll be back soon with the latest.